0: Joe Harvey, Mr Newcastle, black and white, through and through, perfect gentleman. He was a lovely, lovely man, he really was,
1: Um, and he was a joy to play for. A good man, and a
2: good manager.
3: Joe Harvey was just like a father to me.
2: If you cut Joe, you bled black and white. You didn't realise at the time that you were in the presence of greatness.
4: I think Joe was the best servant that I think Newcastle United's has ever had, and I think probably will ever have.
5: Joseph Harvey, born the 11th of June, 1918. A man who gave the majority of his career to Newcastle United both as a player and a manager. A man who was the history books and trophy cabinet will confirm is the club's most successful manager. And yet if you ask Newcastle United fans to name the first two that spring into their mind, it's a fair bet that most will pick Sir Bobby Robson and Kevin Keegan. Perhaps understandably, after all Keegan built that famous entertainer side of the 1990s and took the club within touching distance of the Premier League title. Sir Bobby Robson, a few years later, turned United around from relegation fodder to top of the table challengers. Yet neither managed to do what Joe Harvey did, And that was to win a major trophy. It's now 52 years since that European triumph and Newcastle lifting the Intercity Fairs Cup, a moment that would cement Harvey into the history books forever. In the latest Everything is Black and White podcast documentary, we hear from those who knew Harvey best as we learn about the man behind the legend. This is Joe, Newcastle's greatest ever servant. Few men have an affinity with Newcastle United like that of Joe Harvey. After all, few men before or since have spent the best part of 50 years giving their role to the club. From the 9 years as player and captain to the 13 as manager and continuing the service as chief scout, assistant, caretaker manager and spokesman for the club, Harvey really did do it all. He earned the respect of most he met, his no-nonsense style leaving no one in doubt of the standards he demanded by the players he entrusted to represent the black and white of Tyneside. Now it of course culminated with that first cup win on a scorching hot night in Budapest on the 11th of June 1969. That was Joe's 7th year in charge of Newcastle and his 50th birthday. And the journey to the final and celebrations that followed, as we'll hear from those who were there, where well, as you expect from Joe, cigarette in one hand, straight to the point, and little emotion shown. That was Joe. But to understand the man behind the legend, we first have to go back to the player who made him.
6: He was a, a Yorkshireman from Doncaster. He, he started his career before the war uh, with Bradford and Wolves. Paul Joe knew Newcastle United's official historian, and when he joined Newcastle, he served in the army as a sergeant major, a training instructor, and you can imagine what type of player he was on the field. He was a a shouter, a bowler, a leader, um, a a tough, uncompromising midfielder, a wing halfback in those days. And he had a rather vicious bark when he shouted out his orders on the field.
2: On the field, he was a natural leader of men. John Gibson, Chronicle journalist, following Newcastle United for 55 years. If anybody had a problem in the dressing room, they would go to Joe as the skipper rather than Stan Seymour, who
5: run the the whole club and was chairman, manager, and everything rolled into one. Joe Harvey made 281 appearances for the Magpies, leading them to promotion to Division 1 in the 1947 48 campaign. He established them as a top flight side before leading them as captain to two successive FA Cup wins in 1951.
3: And
7: 1952.
4: I would have to say, in fairness, um, a bit like myself. Hiya, my name's Bob Moncur. I was um, had the honour of being captain of Newcastle United in sort of uh, its mid-sixties, early seventies, and of course knew Joe Harvey very, very well. Uh, I don't think Joe Harvey was the best player in the world. Let's put it that way. But he he could make other people play. And I I think I can. A lot of people used to say I I was like his son. You know, people who knew him from the old days. When I was captain, I was a bit like Joe as well. Not the best player in the world, but could make other people who were probably better players than me play and play at their strength.
7: And those precious medals, so hard to win, are presented by the Queen. Newcastle's captain, taking the cup home again after nearly 20 years, has a message for Tyne side.
2: Hello, Tyneside. Here we are, we're bringing the cup back for you now.
7: Yes, Tyneside will be
5: all united to green Those FA Cup wins footballer. set the foundations for what was to become of Joe Harvey. He retired the following season on from the 1952 victory over Arsenal and he would return to Wembley as part of Newcastle's coaching staff in 1955, watching from the sidelines as they beat Manchester City 3-1. Now the pre-match build-up had been surrounded in drama, with manager Charlie Mitten deciding Jackie Milburn would not be part of the side. With all hell threatening to break loose, Joe smoothed the waters and it was a key reason behind Newcastle lifting the FA Cup for the third time in five years. His years as captain and the experience gained really did put him in good stead for the manager he would become. It wasn't long before Joe was in the dugout, but not at St James's Park. He was told to go away and learn his trade, and that's exactly what he did.
6: He obviously understood that he couldn't just walk into a, a, a top manager's uh, job. He had to understand you know, the, the ways of being a manager, and he did that in the lower divisions with Barrow and Workington. And uh, he obviously had a relationship with the club's directors. He'd been there so many years, he knew them all knew them very close um, uh, and maybe he did have the, the, the nod and the wink that one day he could be uh, manager of Newcastle United
4: His experience of, of having been captain of the club uh, and taking it in management, management it's, it's a great step, it's a natural step and Joe was always going to be a manager
2: And in those days you in the stripes that way If You may well have finished at the top as a player but you started in management at the bottom you, these days, if you're a superstar, you, you can often walk straight into management at, at the highest level with no expense. But if you look at Brian Clough started management at Hartlepool, Joe Harvey started management with Barrow and Workington as far as the Football League was concerned. That was the way you did it in, in those days. And then you, you found
5: your experience, then the big club a calling. The facilities at the likes of Barrow and Wilkinson were very basic and every penny counted. For Joe's son, Ken, he remembers the hard work his dad had to go through as he was learning his trade. It
8: was an apprenticeship to go learn how to be a manager. Go wasn't very old at that time, mm. but he when we went to Barrow... Uh, the, the, they got there, uh, I, it must have been there about maybe three, four weeks before the season started, and the players who were full-time, because a lot of them were part-time, were like painting the stands and what have you, so to make it look good. But when it came to the, like, to the training, I'm going kit. No, no no, balls, no nothing. No, the balls were, were simply rotten that, they, that they've used you know, over the years. So you got in the car, and he came back to Newcastle, and he went to see Sandy, Sandy Much, and they had a storeroom at, at Newcastle that was absolutely full of gear, right? all different shapes, colours uh, that they used to give to other junior football clubs in the area. And he filled his car up with strips, sh- uh, tracksuits, balls, boots, everything, and came back. And they all got, that's where we got all the new gear from.
5: Joe spent eight years learning his trade before Newcastle United finally offered him the job in 1962. Now, it's fair to say that the club were in a bit of turmoil and it was by no means an easy job. United had been relegated from the top flight a couple of seasons back and were really struggling. This is when the board turned to their former captain.
2: When Newcastle came a-calling, it was a big club, but it wasn't a big club on the heights. There were a lot of aged players who needed clearing out and old players that he knew, like uh, Alf McMichael, etc., etc. The club were
6: in a real mess at that time, just relegated from the top fight, and they needed to totally rebuild. And uh, Joe was the man to
7: to lead them uh, in, into a better period. And you, you, you've got to learn very, very quickly, <laughs> here the small clubs. Frank Clark left back at Newcastle United in 1963 to 1975, and. Uh, and they kept, they came they brought him back at, at not a very auspicious time. The club was in a bit of a state when he came back. You know they were in the second division, the old second division, um, with a with a big debts, Not not by today's standards, but quite big debts by uh, by the, the standards back in uh, when would it be? 60, 61, 62. Um, and a, a very ordinary team who had been relegated and, uh, and, and were in the second division. So it was, a, it, was a, it was a big job.
5: Now it took Joe a few seasons to get things into order but in the 1964-65 campaign everything seemed to click and the Magpies were crowned second division champions, topping the table from mid-December. This was a team which really had it all, goals and a strong defensive line. It was built on the experience of players such as Stan Anderson, John McGrath, and Jim Eiley. Fifteen clean sheets were kept that season, and the side only failed to score in four of their league games. The man who net most of those goals that season, 16 in total, was Ron McGarry, a man who Joe first signed while at Workington. Oh, it was phenomenal for me.
9: Everybody likes centre forwards at scoring goals, and you're in the public eye all the time. It was fantastic because every game we thought we could never be beat. You know, we were playing in Northampton, we joined top with us halfway through the season and we beat them 5-0 and I got a hat-trick that day, you know, they said we're invincible. We, we, we had a real good side, you know, and we played some good football.
5: I just want to talk about the moment that promotion was secured then. Um, was it a sense of inevitability, like you say, you, you, you guys were playing so well that it was just something that was expected or was it Joe was very much let's get the job done and then we can then we can celebrate
9: oh Joe always said he wouldn't accept it straight away just said we've got a few games more to play you just play them games and you don't think about anything else promotion or nothing you just play your games and he says once it comes you'll know it's arrived Hmm. and we used to say oh right old boss and the celebrations then, when it did arrive. Oh, we had the, a night. There was a nightclub called Michael's, Then we went to Michael's nightclub. Everything was free. Sitting having a meal, they all had the wives there, and Big John McGrath and I were just by ourselves, and we were going over ordering cigars, box boxes <laughs> of cigars, and passing them,
5: passing them around. <laughs> And everybody suddenly enjoyed it. Joe's task was to establish Newcastle as a regular side in the top flight and in the years before the 1969 First Cup triumph led the club to a series of mid-table finishes. It wasn't easy, money was tight and the club was in debt and Joe having been part of that 50s side knew exactly what the fans expected. But whereas most managers maybe would have shrunk at the challenge, Joe grew. His knack for spotting talented players quickly became apparent.
8: And I think when he first came, I think it was sort of like 11 games without winning, hmm. something like that. Um, and uh, he wasn't sleeping very well, and then he'd say, go, go downstairs and... I don't know if you've ever seen the, uh, the, the, the official handbook that had, like 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 you know like a car manufacturers used to give, right? Oh, and he could sit and paw over that for hours, thinking, well, can we get him for now? Can we borrow him? Can we have a lend with him or well, whatever? Uh,
7: but eventually they got there I mean when you think about it he built um, probably three three decent teams in his time there you know three good teams the team that got promoted um, then the team that uh, got into Europe and and won the uh, and won the first cup and then uh, the Malcolm McDonald uh, team which Maybe should have done better than it did, but was, you know, mid-table in the Premier League. Got to a cup final and won one or two minor trophies. Um, so he built, he built three, almost three, complete teams, you know, in, in his time at the club, which is no mean feat at all
4: he was a good picker of players you know you think of he knew Newcastle United he knew what the fans wanted and if you think back the players he brought in you know, he brought Stan Anderson in for the promotion side Uh, John McGrath I think was already here but then in the latter years he got Malcolm he got Tony Green uh, Terry Hibbert you know all you know you think of all these type of players just um, crowd pleasers and that Joe knew that You ne- needed an entertainer he liked to have somebody this jinky smith people who-, who love watching the team not necessarily if they got beat it, it was not the end of the day as long as the, the top players had performed and so he knew what the fans wanted that was his that was his great um, strength if you like you know and it's difficult to pick the right player all the time but Joe was good at that
5: what do you think the secret was of Joe's to be able to say, well, well he's a good player? I mean, because you look at Malcolm, for instance, okay, he'd done it, but he hadn't done it at the, the no, no. So what, what do you think the, the Joe's secret was?
4: I don't know the answer to that. Uh, whatever it was, it was pretty good. You know, I, I look at myself, he picked me out. I was no sort of top-class player, but he believed in me, trusted me. And he had Frank as well. He, trusted, he, 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 he saw good players and, and also he liked good people. I think, you know, he liked guys who had some someone about them that were honest and hardworking, not always right but and not the best of players, but he built a team, you know. Joe did it
1: um, in in such quiet fashion, he never made a fuss. Hi, I'm Malcolm McDonald and uh, I was signed by Joe Harvey from Luton Town back in 1971. You know, he wasn't one to go into the boardroom demanding this, demanding that. He would say, What is my budget? Thank you very much. And then he would work out how the very best way was to spend it. What he also did say, uh, and I hope everybody takes this in absolutely the right way, but he had um, a, a, a very powerful knowledge of Tyneside and the people who lived there. And the people who came um, to watch Newcastle United, all Newcastle United supporters. He, he, he was one of them, really. Um, uh, he had become one of them, and and so he understood them. And I remember him saying. He said. It's always important to give the supporters all what they want. He said, and. If I go out in the close season and I spend a hundred thousand pounds each summer on on a real uh, gifted player, he said, everybody goes, wow. He said, so one year it was Jimmy Smith, the next year it was somebody, you know, and then he started just rattling off, you know, and there was, and Greeny, there was Greeny, Terry Hibbett, there was myself. And, you know, and we'd all come um, uh, uh, in in that summer period, and it was, and that became Joe's wow factor, that he always brought in somebody who was going to really excite.
5: With each player who came in, there was a different technique to getting the best out of each of them. We've heard from Sutermac and Joe would often try to rile him up before a game. Someone like Terry Hibbert needed an arm around him and others like Bob Monker and Frank Clark were pretty much left to their own devices. The consensus, though, for most was that Joe's man management was second to none. As John Anderson, who played for Newcastle while Joe was Arthur Cox's assistant in the early 80s, recalls,
0: he's a lovely, lovely man, a really humble man. Um... And he was a big help to me. I have to say that coming to a new club, it wasn't. It was never easy. Help, help, help you settle in. Um, you know, he'd always have a word in your ear. Is everything all right? How's things going? You know, is there anything I can do? Um, do you need anything? Do you need any help? He was just always there for you. He he
1: he had this wonderful way of just allowing you. To do your job really well, and uh, and and that's and that's a, a, a real professional touch. If you like, he was as good a psychologist as ever you could meet, um, because he knew just how to treat and just what to say to to each individual, and of course we're we're. All quite differently made up. And and Joe he would have that ability just to as we're getting ready for a match. And he'd just saunter around and he'd he'd say one thing to one player, but then find something else to say to the next, knowing just what was going to wind you up and really get you fired up ready for the, the, the 90 minutes of action. Um, uh, and and it, it, and it was all done, it was all done low key. You know, he didn't make a big thing of anything. Um, he, and he'd just come and, and you could hear him speaking, but he wasn't speaking to you. He was speaking to the guy he was looking at. And it was all short, sharp, and quite brief but very much
3: to the point absolutely to the point Joe harvey was just was like a father to me
5: that's the voice of irving natris who played under joe harvey in the early 70s
3: i remember when i were having our first child by my first marriage and um, i had a bit of a meltdown at luton and he spent we were having a few problems at home with the pregnancy and, and he spent most of the night chatting to me and then sent me home, um, put someone to come and pick me up sent me home. Um,
4: that's the sort of man he was.
3: In football he was ranked as one of my most favourite people in the world.
4: He would treat every player differently. He knew when to give somebody a kick up the backside. He knew when to put somebody's arm, you know, arm round. Like say, so pop was probably a classic. If you had a go at pop, he would go into shell. But if you put your arm round him and say, "Come on, Robo, you can give us the goals we need," he, he was good at that. He was good. Well, he, he was good. He motivated me, didn't he? Albeit at times I was getting angry, but he, he motivated me and knew what he was doing. And I think if you ask any player, played in the Joe asked Malcolm. Malcolm was Malcolm, hard to handle, but Joe motivated him. Not that he needed much motivation. And in them days, I don't think we needed much motivation, but it was, just, uh, it was little tricks that Joe could play, and he was crafty with it as well.
5: In terms of your career, what kind of influence did he have? Well, he had good and bad,
4: because in 19, when the promotion side of 1965, which was the famous half-back line of Anderson, McGrath and Eilie, I was like the one who filled in when, um, one, you know, when one of them was injured. And, of course, David Craig and Frank Clark were fullbacks, And I could never really get in the team regularly. In the 65, only played 11 times in the promotion season. But then the following season, I started to think I should be in this side. And uh, I got the stage where he would put me in, take me out one to another, and I got a bit peed off and uh, I eventually went to see him because I wanted to be playing in the first team. I think I was probably 21 at the time or 28 at the time. And I thought... And I had I just got married as well. And uh, I thought, I want to be in a, I want to be playing football. I don't want to keep being sub or reserve or whatever you want. to call it in them days. And so I went, to, I went to see Joe and eventually um, he said, well, what do you want? He said, I said, well, I want a transfer. And he very quickly looked up. He said, oh, OK, all right, son, you never a transfer. How much do you think you're worth? Which was a bit of a, a question to a young lad. I went, well, well, um, yeah, uh, hummed and hawed and I said, Well, we, we agreed 25,000. And at the same time, incidentally, Pop Robson was having the same sort of issue as me. He was in the side and he had the same thing about me. I want to move on, I want to be playing football. So anyway, I went um, and he said, Okay, I'll put you on a transfer list. 25 grand, right? Done. So I, I came out of the office quite pleased that I'm thinking, well, Fair enough, you know, he's, he's done it, he, he's going to let me go. Um, so um, Gibbo, John Gibson, the, I kept getting room with Gibble who came me and says, by the way, he says, Norwich are in for you and I think the manager was called Lowell Morgan who used to be at Darling and Lowell Morgan uh, was after me and he was after Pop as well and Pop was up for the same sort of price, 25 grand uh, so with Gibble tipping me off I would go and see Joe and say oh, I hear that uh, so and so's after me he says, yeah, you're right son, you're right but they won't pay the money so on that note I had to back off and this went on for two or three weeks. And every time I went in, he says, yeah, you're right. They've been on the phone, but they won't pay the money. So after a few weeks, eventually I got in the team, didn't I? And the rest was history a little bit. But some years later when I met him, I actually met Law Morgan somewhere. And I says, Law, why didn't you? Why don't you pay the money for Pop and I? You know, 25 grand each was a great buy for you. He says, 25 grand. He says, You're kidding. Every time I went back to Joe, he stuck another 10 grand (laughs) on. He says, He was right. You know, we wouldn't pay the money because we couldn't afford it. And that was, and so I saw Joe some time after about whatever happened there. And he told me the truth. He says, Look, you were going nowhere. Neither was Pop we wanted you at this football club but at least I kept you quiet for a little while and I thought, I learned a lot then from good management letting the player think he's winning the battle actually he's not the manager's manoeuvring you and I think it was just that was typical Joe Harvey's methods he could get he'd get what he wanted at the end of the day
9: I remember George Best when he first went to Manchester United he couldn't settle wanted to come go home all the time and Busby put his arm around him and start having a chat to him and explaining to him Joe you done the same to us. You got one young lad, he says, you're getting too skinny. He says, start drinking a bottle of Guinness a day. And the lad started doing it, and he started to put that little bit weight on him, you know, and he'd, he'd put his arm around him. He'd come to the likes of uh, Johnny Craggs, and then when Craigie was always getting in, your time will come, son just it; the time will come and john did eventually get in, into the team you know he tried to help you always but if a player's playing better than you you can't just drop him to put him in for a couple of games and joe could explain that and i i, I like joe straight away because he was just this blunt um yorkshireman
5: that's the voice of tony green a winger joe Harvey bought in
9: 1971. we're playing um arsenal and so somebody says, what about Alan Ball? And he just walking by me and he says to me, you're a better player than Alan Ball. And just carried on walking. And you think, oh, he thinks I'm better than Balling." Don't ask me why, but it it makes you feel good. And you hear the knack of doing things like that, Joe.
5: When you speak to former players, they all talk about how good his man management was. I'm just wondering where you think your dad's skill came from.
8: Probably from the army. Hmm. When he was a the sergeant major. Yeah, I suppose he had to learn... The, so, some of the intricacies of, of all different people, and they were all we're none of us are the same. So, you had to, to learn at, some to sit, some you had to shout out, some you had to be calm and friendly with. Do
5: you remember the first time that you met Joe Harvey? What did you think?
1: So, my first meeting with Joe was to get um, a bollocking from him. I I, would, I was in my second season at Luton Town and um and was scoring a lot of goals alex stock he pulled me onto the pitch and he said um he said well old son he said a small club like luton town he said if we um if if we're not um gonna get promotion and and the money that comes with that then we have to sell our our best asset and i'm afraid that's you mate And so come the end of the season, you're on your bike. Now I can tell you, he said that there are three clubs interested in you, Man United, Chelsea, and Newcastle United. He said, uh, all you've got to do is just keep sticking it in the old onion bag until now, which is what I did. And then (laughs) uh, it came to the last game of the season. We were playing Cardiff at home, and this was uh, midweek. It so happened that I scored a hat-trick that night. That was on the Wednesday night. And Alex Stock said, come and see me in my office on Friday morning. So I went into his office and, uh, and the lassie said, um, oh, he's, um, he's on his way. Um, he's, he's coming back from London. And so in he came uh, when he arrived and he said, well, old son, he said, I've just been down and spoken with Joe Harvey the manager of Newcastle United he said lovely lovely guy he said um now he said we've agreed everything and it's it's down to you now um to get down to the uh, great northern hotel by king's cross station i drove down um uh, and fortunately was able to park by the hotel And in I went, asked at a reception where I might find Joe Harvey, and she said, if you go down that corridor over there, she said, there's a lounge at the end and the Newcastle United Party are in there. So I was walking down the corridor when the far door opened and these sort of big, wide, broad shoulders filled the the door frame. and. And I, I, I recognized Joe Harvey, of course, because I had seen him play back in the fifties. Um, and, and he was very dis, distinguishable. And so uh, I put, outstretched my arm um, to shake his hand as I was approaching him. And I said, uh, I said, good morning, Mr. Harvey. My name is Malcolm McDonald, and uh, my manager, Alex Stock at Luton, has asked me to come and talk with you. His first words to me were, so you're the little bugger who's just cost me another 30 grand, are you? I said, I beg your pardon. He said, he said, what do you think you were doing? Scoring a hat-trick in your last bloody game, he said do you not realize that back at easter we had agreed a fee with luton town he said and we had agreed 155,000 you score a hat-trick through the week he said in the last game of the season your manager comes here this morning and says that we can't talk to you unless we pay luton town another 10 grand per goal and up the fee went from 155 to um to 185. so my first meeting with joe was to get um a bollocking from him uh and i just stood there and i and and i thought dear me i never thought i would get a bollocking for for scoring a hat-trick and all i can Think now is looking back, he might have given me a a right going over for that hat trick, but the next hat trick that I scored, he certainly didn't, which
0: turned out to be my home debut for
1: Newcastle United.
0: He was just a really, really humble man. It was, you know, the first time I met Joe Harvey, you were in Northern because of what he'd done. You know, he'd, he'd won cup finals as a player, played played at Wembley um, you know managed Newcastle to a Fairs Cup um, got them to an FA Cup final so you were aware awe of him um, and I think probably more in awe of him somebody like him than you are of players nowadays um, you know because he was he was larger than life he was a big man you know he was a he was a powerful looking man stood very strong up straight and you know shoulders back, and you looked at him and you thought, "Oh, I'm not too sure. I'd like to get on the wrong side of you. You know, <laughs> you're not somebody I'd like to like to fall out with." Um, but he was he, he was a lovely fella.
4: When he first came to Newcastle, and I was only a kid at the time, and we used to train in the car park, and we used to play five-a-side in the car park um, at the back of the this John's at the back of the stand. And I uh, remember Joe came and we were, we were playing like eight a side in the car park, which was quite slopey. Um, and then Joe came and he wanted to join in. And I always remember he came out with brand new trainers and a sort of tracksuit, bright sort of red tracksuit. And he came down and joined in. And I tackled him, over he went, then off he went. Next time I saw him, his ankle was broken, <laughs> so it was my first meeting with Joe Harvey. <laughs> I did his ankle. Not unfairly, by the way, I've got to say it was a fair tackle. And anyway, he was, he was in plaster for a few weeks after
5: that. So that was my first introduction to Joe. Joe's skill as a speaker weren't just for one-on-one sessions. They were vital for the moments before kickoff of games. They were never very lengthy, these team talks, and nor were they very detailed. But the players who witnessed them remember them with much fondness.
4: He wasn't a very good tactician, but one of the things outstanding memories of mine. You might be too young. You remember Subutio, you know the little men that you, right? So in the sixty-five, when the in the sixty-five era, you know when we just, um, I think, it was the year we got promotion, just after Joe, his team talks or meetings were like, here's a team, boom, it was up in the thing, that's it. And he would very briefly chat, da 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 da, and it was like ten minutes. It was no long in-depth thing. But in this day, we're playing Manchester United. And opposite of his office was the tea room that people use on, on a match day. And he, he says, I want everybody in the room. Somebody came and said, Boss wants you in a tea room, such and such a time. It was on a Friday. Uh, right, what's it for? He wants a team talk. And we're going, Team talk? <laughs> You're kidding. And anyway, we're playing Manchester United. And of course, they had the best it's the Dennis Laws, the Paddy Crowns, the great side. So, and we're going in. Getting a team talk with because we never had one like this before. So we all go in, and I remember Albert, Albert Bennett was in the team. I can see him to this day. And when we went in, it was Manchester United we we're playing. He had the black and white Subiuro team on the on his on the little table, and he had the red and white of Manchester United. So we all go in, we're all going. What is about then? And then he starts to say, "Right, play Manchester United." And he obviously and we we're going. Yeah, we know that on tomorrow and right, I want, and he would go, he would take Craigie, who was right back, he'd move Craigie to go and mark Bestie or something, and he, he was moving men all over the place, Bob, I want you, When Dennis Law I want you, and he would move me, and I'd be up against the, the little sub man in the red and white, and he went on like this for a while, and eventually, and when, nobody said a word, because we're all going, can't believe this is happening, so eventually, he says, right, has anybody got any questions about tomorrow? And Albert Bennett went, yes, boss, I've got one. So Joe went, what's that then? And Albert went over the table and he just tipped the table up and all the guys, all the little men flew all over the place. (laughs) And that was saying to me, what happens if somebody does this? Bang. And that was it, little men flying over, vivid memory. Uh, what What happens if somebody does this? And he just tipped the whole table up. Brilliant.
1: He just let everybody know exactly what the task was, exactly what they needed to do Um, and and he really could just put into 25 words what it took people 25 minutes to say Joe came into the dressing room and he stood as I was as I was sort of getting dressed sitting on the the bench seat Uh, Joe came and stood in front of me and he had this habit of having his hands in his pockets and he would rock on his heels. He would just sort of gently rock on his heels. Um, and it was a signal that he had news to impart. Um, and so uh, he said, well, Big Mal, uh I have just signed the man who is going to make the bullets for you to fire. What a great line. What, it, that just tells you the whole story. And having said that, and he, and he said it loud enough for everybody in the dressing room behind him and to his sides to hear. And we were all agog and we said, who is it boss, who is it? Well, you signed, who, who is it who's joining us? And he sort of turned towards the door and spoke over his shoulder to the whole of the dressing room. And he said, I have just signed Terry Hibbett from Leeds United for the princely sum of 30,000 pounds. We all went, wow. We were seriously, seriously impressed. Seriously impressed. Fabulous little player. Great left peg. And Joe continued his way to the door, was half out, and then he sort of just popped back in and looked around the door, and he said, Mind, he could cause trouble in an empty house. <laughs> and then just walked out, slammed the door, and that was it. So, you see, Joe, he again, here he was. He, he was telling you this huge picture story of of a guy who was about to join us Um, A, that he had signed, B, that he he could be a right mouthy little so and so Um, and sure enough he didn't let us down in that department, that was for sure Um, uh, and Joe just had that ability just to just to do the one-liner, and it it, it takes other people um, an ency- an encyclopedia full of words to to get over what they mean. Joe, one-liner, um, great knack, and and it and it was the message could be good, it could be bad, it could be threatening,
4: but always a one-liner. In 1968, I went to Easter Road and I did my college. So I actually missed the first two Fairs Cup games. And I think the next game, Sporting Lisbon, I think we played. We were staying at a hotel in Cascai, which is a nice little fishing village. Because it was a bit of a, no, a no, no novelty, you'd have like uh, Bob Cass, John Gibson, uh, all the press boys used to go with him to go scouting. And this day at the meeting, I said, I'll wind the gaffer up yeah." So he gave his team talk right And we said, oh, boss, what about so-and-so? And uh, what does he do? And Never mind him. Just you do what you're good at, and he wouldn't give you wouldn't get any information. And he would keep saying, "And we had it all planned." Clarky, me, Craig, ask him about the goalkeeper. All right, and Joe. Nah, well, yeah, nah, Forget about him. Just you do what you're good at. Don't worry about them. And he was he was waffling all the time. <laughs> and uh, eventually, he, uh, put, we put him under pressure. I said, "Well, boss, you've been here. You've seen them twice. You must know what they're good at and what they're good and what the team is." Um, and he just. He just, well, I can tell you, the taxi driver says the centre forward's quite good and the, the waiter says the goalie's a bit dodgy and crosses, at which stage the whole thing just erupted. And that was his, that was his team talk. Put him under pressure, the goalie, and the waiter says this and the waiter says that, and that was just, and that was, that typified Joe's organisation regarding the team. Now
5: while that team talk held in the early rounds of the 68-69 First Cup run, Lacked the detail that some craved, the one which Joe delivered at half-time during the final of that competition against Hungary inside Udesdosa turned out to be exactly what was needed. For context, United won the first leg of the final 3-0 up at St James' Park, but were finding things in Hungary that night a little difficult, as Frank Clark and Bob Moncure recall.
7: We got got a right chasing in the first half. We came in, we were 2-0 down with we were still 3-2 up on out, but we were hanging on by our fingernails, really.
4: The record tells you we went out and got hammered in the first half. Will they make four? It was brilliant, save a few certainties, um, And uh, we defended reasonably well, but we still came down at half-time, 2-0 down. And don't forget, they were one of the best teams in Europe at the time. We'd had a, we'd
7: got the, the run around, really, and uh, we were all sitting in the dressing room um, Heads on, heads in
4: hand. Well, de- dejected, of course. Psychologically, even myself, I was thinking, this is going to be tough. So we went in, and as I say, we got in the dressing room first, and Joe had to make his way from wherever he was the dugout, And he wasn't in the dressing room when we arrived. But we arrived, and I, c- I can tell you the sweat was dripping off us. Because I remember sitting down next to Clarke, and the sweat was actually forming a pool between my legs on the floor. Sitting there, head down, every going, not a word said. And all of a sudden, the door opened and George is bounding in this door. And he stood there with his cigarette in his mouth and he looked around and he says, What's the problem? <laughs> and nothing was said, of course, nobody answered that. He said, What's the problem? What's the... Eventually, I got my head up. I said, well, boss, I don't know if you've noticed, we're getting hammered. We're 2-0 down, don't know what to do with them. They're killing us in the wings and they're getting balls into the box. We kind of handle it all the time. He just stood with his cigarette. Then he went, there's not a problem. And I've still got my head down, by the way. I'm thinking, what's going on here? Not a problem? I said, what do you mean there's not a problem? I've just told you, you're not watching the game?
7: It was very succinct and just said, listen, pull yourself together. All you've got to do is get out there and score a goal.
4: At such stage, I went, are you kidding? Score a goal? We've never been over the halfway line. How are we going to score a goal?
7: Well, <laughs> it was hard not to laugh because we would not been able to get a kick
4: then other one score a goal but anyway I'm telling you all these mm, flipping foreigners they will collapse like a pack of flipping cards or oh, what's that effect I won't swear too bad but you, you have to put your own thinking in that and that's all he said all you got to do is flip and forwards co- collapse like a pack of flipping cards and he walked out no tactical do this do that just that was his line off he went of course as history will tell you I go out and score one score another one
7: and, and that was it really they collapsed uh it was like somebody had had pricked a balloon with a pin. They just absolutely collapsed. They realised it. They then had to uh, they had to score five to to win the game. Um, and we, you know, we 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 went on and actually won the and won the game itself. But it was his his great court. He didn't he didn't come in. He wasn't uh, ranting, raving, and coming up with all kinds of crazy things. All he said was get
4: a goal and they'll, and they'll go, and he was right. You know. Again, when we came in, he wasn't in the dressing room. We came in and eventually he walks through the door again and he just stood there like like John Wayne. He says, what did I flipping tell you? And that was it, that was his. That was just a fabulous bit of motivation. The 11th of
5: June 1969 was not only the final of the fairs Cup, but also Joe's 50th birthday, and it was a double celebration. There was champagne, dancing, even karaoke and the party lasted long into the night. Before in the morning, the players boarded a flight home to Tyneside.
4: I think there's a great photograph says um, Stan Simo, myself, and Joe, and Fenton Braithwaite. And one of the, it's a sort of an iconic photograph of me toasting it or doing whatever, toasting on the play. However, when we get to Newcastle Airport, now don't forget it's now Thursday, played on the Wednesday, Thursday afternoon, get back to Newcastle, and we're thinking, well, uh, get back, I'd be good, and maybe go down the ground, I couldn't imagine the reception we got.
7: Well, I don't think any of us uh, expected the uh, the scale of, it. you know, it was, uh, it was incredible, the, the whole way back.
4: Into in
2: Newcastle Airport, doors opened. Bob was told he had to go out with a cup, he was embarrassed because he thought, why, we're going, there'll not be anybody, there. we're just coming in, we'll, we're
4: going down to St James', there'll be a few in St James'. So I was, I felt a bit of a, a prat when... Uh, uh, Stan Seymour said to Joe get Bob and take the cup out first so Joe came and he says you've got to take the cup out first I said what do you mean take it out first he says you've got to be first out the door I said I'm not doing that I said, I'm an idiot thinking there'd be nobody there he says you've got to take the cup out first so eventually Joe says you've got to do it you got to do it so I go and I get the cup and the door opens and I, I tell you I still get emotional now when I tell the story the door opened and it was like um, if you go to foreign country, you know, when the heat, heat hits you and it was all the fans lined up, unbelievable. On, you know, in the old airport and then, and that, I went, Jesus, this is, this is a big occasion. Didn't realise how big it was. Then Batterson James Park, coming down Ballot Road, the old Lees End and the stand you could see in the corner and like you, we were staggered by, you could see all the bodies there. I don't know, somebody said 30, 40,000 people there in the ground. We're just and then we just, I mean, his name would do the lap of honour
5: and the, the singing of Joe Harvey's songs. And great. Did Joe allow himself to get a bit emotional over them two days?
7: Oh, he did. He did, like the rest of us, he certainly did, yeah. But it was a big, big thing for him, you know, with this you know, um, a wonderful thing that he'd helped to do for the football club. You know, the, the, the ground was virtually full. It was uh, absolutely amazing experience for us all. And. Uh, he would obviously be feeling very, he, he, he was good at hiding his emotion, but he was, would obviously be feeling very emotional about that uh, that reception, like the rest of us.
4: Oh yeah, yeah. Well, he, uh, when he got back to St. James's Park, he was leading the singing, because <laughs> he'd done it all before, hadn't he? Cup final, all the rest, and he was singing the blazing races. So Joe Joe was quite emotional about that. Never showed that much. He wasn't was, not, was not that type of guy, but he knew that he was delighted with that
5: result. That cup win remains Newcastle's last major honour, although many had expected it to be just the start of things to come. Joe would rebuild his side in the early 70s, bringing in players like Malcolm McDonald, John Tudor and Terry Hibbett, and the team really ought to have done better than it did. Its high point was reaching the FA Cup final in 1974, but Newcastle were embarrassed by Liverpool, losing 3-0 at Wembley. I think he was,
1: I think he was really annoyed with himself. Um, that he had sort of stepped back a bit and allowed Keith Birkinshaw to dictate how we played on the day. And, and Burkey changed it. Um, changed it from what Joe wanted, I think. And we found it very difficult, very difficult indeed.
4: I think Joe was very disappointed. You know, have as much as I was, uh, because unfortunately we, that team was a great team, you know you think of you Terry and uh, Malcolm, John Tudor, we, on a day we were a good side, but on that day there was too many people didn't do their job on that day and I don't want to go too criticise too much, but it was, there was too, in my opinion, there was too many people saying we'll do this and we'll do this and do that, and had never been at Wembley. And you know, likes David, David Craig, myself, Willie McFall, Frank Clark. We'd all played at Wembley, and it, that's an experience. You know, it's it's an experience, but there's a lot of players that had that day hadn't ever played at Wembley, and you know it, it can it can tire you very very quickly. But the emotion of the whole thing as well is important.
1: Stuart Barrowclough was left out, which was quite a shock, particularly for John Tudor and I, because we had such a fabulous relationship as the striking partnership with our winger out on the right, um, uh, 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 who who used to send um, crosses in like Exocet missiles. And for some reason, Keith Bookenshaw left him out and Stuart Barrowclough wasn't the sub on the day. He was up in the stand. Um, And so it wasn't as if Joe could uh, could have overridden the situation while the game was in progress and and got Stuart out there. And I think that was a breakdown in in the relationship that Berkey and Joe Harvey had together. It was a bit of a breakdown, um, was that. And Joe, I think he was blaming himself as much as anybody else. He never pointed the finger at anybody. Not anybody.
4: And that was, that was one of my most disappointing matches, I think. Um, we just didn't perform on a day. on a good day. We would have beat Liverpool, but it wasn't to be. And as it turned out, that was, um, that was the last game I played
5: for Newcastle United. You can read between the lines now if you want. A disappointing season was to come and things started to turn. Fans began voicing their discontent and Joe resigned in the summer of 1975. But those still around believed that he deserved better from the hierarchy of Newcastle United.
1: I thought it was an absolute disgrace. I really did. It was the summer of 1975. Joe was in was in contract talks with Frank Clark. Frank and I always went um, for lunch. one time at the Milkmaid. I saw Frank and he was he was in a state I'd just never seen him in before. And I said, um, I said, Frank, what the hell's wrong with you? He says, You'll never believe what's happened. He said, You know, I was I was negotiating with Joe f- for the new contract. I said, Yeah. I said, And. He said, Well, Joe pulled me aside this morning, and um, and he told me that uh, that he had been instructed by the board to cease negotiation with me and that um that he was to give you a free transfer and that was an instruction from the board of directors i said you are kidding me frank he said no he said the board of directors are saying that in their opinion i'm finished as a footballer (laughs) and i said that is bizarre and he said he said, well, you should have seen Joe. He, he said he was so upset um, to have to tell me this. But uh, um, Joe Harvey, he had, he had been given this ultimatum by the board. The then crazy thing is that having had to give um, Frank a free transfer, um, Joe was then informed by the board that he was out.
7: You know, it was uh, it was very sad uh, for for all of us. Um, that last that last day when he came in the dressing room to tell me I was getting a free transfer, tell Keith Birkinshaw he'd been sacked, and and telling the two of us that he the Joe himself had been uh, moved upstairs to general manager. Um, that's my abiding memory of him really, because obviously that was the last time I saw
4: him as a, as, a, as a kind of my manager, you know. Yeah, I think obviously I wasn't there at the time and I was disappointed to, to read that he, he had left. But, he had, but, I, but No matter what you do for any football club, at the end of the day, you, you're going to have to go. You know, you go Bill Shankly, all the great managers, they've got to leave at some stage and it's it's, always, it's never very pleasant, I don't think, and um, because normally the team's not doing very well. And I think that's, that overcomes it. And then the fans get on the back of, you know, you know, even the point of, you know, remember the fans get on the back of Joe, um, albeit with his terrific record. And you're, you're going to have, he was in management, what, from 60 to, well, before that, before he came to Newcastle for a long time. And he, and he gave everything to his club.
7: I think possibly Joe had mellowed a little bit. Well, mellowed quite a lot um, by then. Which most people do as they get older, you know. I think it's a it's a natural uh, part of the aging process. That uh, he'd, he'd been relatively successful, and um, he was getting older, and he'd mellowed a little bit.
1: And here was this totally calm, reassured guy who um, who, who sought to really get the very best out of all of his players. Um, and and did it in such a a fabulous way. And he always commanded utter respect, just on a natural basis. Um, Having got rid of Joe, they then get Gordon Lee. And uh, I just thought, what on earth are they playing at upstairs?
5: What are they doing? Did Joe come and see you, or, or you know, the, 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 the group and explain and say, look, I'm off now, this is... Yeah, yeah, he yeah. did. Um,
1: yeah, and, and for the first time, I actually saw a bit more than a tear in his eye. Um, it, it was, I think it had come as a, as a complete and utter shock um, for him, um, but for all of us as well. And, and I think it just broke his heart.
7: Well, he must have been. Listen, we, we're all hurt. You know, I was bloody hurt, and Keith Birkinshaw was hurt. And, you know, I've been sacked uh, since then, and it, it almost hurts anybody when they... Uh, I'm sure when they lose their job. Um, but he was realistic. Uh, we'd underperformed. As I said to you before, you know, that team should have done better. For whatever reason, it didn't. Um, so it's, you know, that's football. It's a, it's a fact of life.
1: And so he was never going to take umbrage for being sacked. Never. He was saddened hugely. But it wasn't long before Joe was back at the club, not as manager, but uh, but in, in a scouting um, position and, and so on. The club, uh, the club was his heart uh, and, and, and he made the heart of Newcastle United tick um, in, in a way that no, no other could.
5: As you heard there from Supermac, Joe did indeed return to the club very quickly and he even stepped into the role of caretaker manager in August 1980 after the sacking of Bill McGarry. Joe's friend, Arthur Cox, would then be appointed manager and he would work alongside him, showing him the ropes. Joe's influence, like that of many great managers, was felt up and down the country in the dugouts of Fulham, Hart and Nottingham Forest, but to name a few, as some of his greatest players took the step into management. Did you take anything from what you learned under Joe into your managerial career? Yes, I did.
1: And one of those things was never, ever... Lose your temper, never ever. Um, always maintain control over yourself. If you maintain control over yourself,
7: you can then have that control of of
1: your players and
7: what have you. Well, listen. I think um, I think all of us, everybody, in every walk of life, you uh, you uh, absorb things from from other people that you work with, that you come across um you absorb them yourself and you and you, you think mm, that might be that's something I like that that's a good idea and then when you get the chance to uh, to do the job yourself it it, it comes out uh, it comes out in you as your is your way you know um but obviously the uh, the simplicity of it if you like of 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 trying to get quality players in and just just giving them a um, a framework, really, to to hang, the, hang their talents on and, and, and go out and express themselves, uh, was something that I always, uh, you know, I always kept in mind. I mean, you know, it, it, Brian, very Brian Clough was very similar to that, you know. He uh, he didn't fill players' heads full of um, uh, complicated stuff and complicated tactics, and you know, had a very basic way of playing. Um, and as long as you uh, as long as you you, know, you 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 weren't asked to do what you couldn't do. And as long as you, tr- you try to do to do that, then you're okay. And, and Joe was, was similar, really.
1: So what I learned from Joe is, make everybody prior to the game, make everybody aware of exactly what you want from them, what they have to do. And if you're thorough in doing that, um, then there's no need through the 90 minutes of, of football out on the pitch for you to be screaming and shouting. Um, and uh, um, you've got half time to put things right or,
4: or to make changes or whatever. Joel said to me once, you go as a manager, you've got to manage the team and you've got to manage the fans. He's most of all, you've got to manage the board. He taught me how to man- manipulate people, maybe is the wrong word. But I remember he had a he had a, a friend well there was a, a guy called Fenton Braithwaite who was a plastic surgeon. Lovely, lovely, lovely man. And he was Joe's pal. And uh, Joe, when he wanted something with the board, he was on the board, Fenton was on the board. And when he wanted, Joe wanted something, without sort of saying, I would like this or like that he used to get over the Fenton, give him a cup of drink and say, Fenton. Yeah, you know, the board meet, can you maybe just mention this and mention it? So Fenton Braith would mention it. He would mention it in the board. Oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> so Joe was he could manipulate people, which he did with me as well, but he was he was clever that way that he could devious is the wrong word, but he could manipulate people and say, Well, the best way to get that is to do that and do that. And I sort of took a little bit off of his skill when I came winning in management as well.
5: So we've heard about Joe's skills as a speaker, his talents as a man motivator and his influence in the dugout. But when you speak to his former players, there's two things that stand out above all else. That is the image of Joe on the touchline with a cigarette in one hand and also some very tasty advice he would give to his defenders.
0: He, lo- he loved the cigarette. Um, you'd walk into dressing rooms and you couldn't see any anybody or anything because of Joe's cigarette smoke you know Um, but yet again that was back in the day that was the the way you know there was a lot of players that I played with who had a cigarette at half time or had a cigarette before the game Um, you know and mentalities have changed since then but that was that was part parcel
4: I can see my visions of him I can see him in the dugout now uh, smoking in the cigarette in the dugout just all you can see is cigarette after cigarette and Pointing his finger, like do this and do that, that's that's my vision of him to this day. Now that we're talking about him.
7: He did like a fag in the train, in the uh, in that, the box there, eh, you know, the, that little dugout that they used to sit in. You know, when you look at that today and compare it with the with the benches and dugouts that they've got nowadays, it's it's hilarious, really. There'd be three three or four of them squashed in there almost below ground level, it, it, I don't know how they could... It was, you know, really difficult to see anything. Uh, and he, he usually had a, a flag in his mouth, but, uh, you know, that, as I say, that was, well, yeah, he was a product of his time. Joe smoked like a chimney. Um, three of the four of the players
3: smoked. And one day we walked in the dressing room and it had no smoking signs up. <laughs> so um, we all looked and thought, when you, when it wasn't unusual those days for the for the players to smoke in the dressing room. Um, anyway, about two games after it went up, I think we played Man United at home, beat them 4-3 and a really event, <laughs> and and just came into the dressing room like a full time, like truly elated, and and oh what a game, blah, blah. ripped down the no smoking signs and said, "What well, he said." <laughs> and lit a cigarette and gave one to Terry Hibbert and one to Malcolm Macdonald.
4: And there was a few of the lads smoking. Joe used to, at half time, stand at the top of the tunnel, which he had to come round and up the stairs. And stand, he would stand at the top of the tunnel. And if you were having a good game, he'd give you a lighted cigarette. If you didn't, he wouldn't give you one. That was it. So if you were a smoker, you knew you were doing good or bad. Have a fagson, and he just ignored you if, you if you're not doing so well. That, so. That was that was when I was a bit younger. That was a '65 sight, I think it was mostly. Uh, so that was Joe's way of saying, you're, you're rubbish today. He wouldn't give you a light. But other than that, you, you think now, you know, smoke-filled dressing room.
9: Oof, horrendous. We were playing Southampton and Trevor uh, Hockey was on the left, uh, on the right wing. And Joe Harvey says to him, now listen, there's a big centre forward called Shivers. He doesn't like to be bustled or knocked at anything. When you get the chance, just give him a little tap or something so they kicked the match off and Trevor rang from the right wing and kicked them straight away (laughs) and you see Joe on the side just shaking his head (laughs) I was a sub I
3: was sub against Liverpool uh, and Liverpool were like the best team in the country and we were drawing 1-1 right and um, I forget their right winger but he's a flyer this kept going past Frank Clark Frank Clark was unbelievably quick right and he kept going past Frank and 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 Joe shouted at him Clark get a grip man and Clark and Clark said I can't it's too quick I can't catch him well he says let's see how fast he can limp I remember
0: the opening day of the promotion season 83-84 at Leeds um they had a a Scottish international winger called Arthur Graham. And we were in the dressing room beforehand, and Joe Harvey, Lord of Mercy on him, was Coxie's assistant at the time, and pacing up and down. And Joe says, strongly, and I said, I'm not too sure which way to play this by today. Joe said, he's, he can go inside, he's outside, he's got two good feet, he's quick. And I thought Joe would give us words of wisdom, and he just walked away. And I thought, oh, that's brilliant. That's been a great help. And the bell went at ten to three. We're in the tunnel, and I get this tap on the shoulder, and it was Joe when he whispered in my ear, "See how quick he can limp around the halfway line." And uh, they kicked off. Frank Gray. They knocked it straight back to Frank Gray, who knocked it straight up the line to Arthur Graham, and I ball bounced between us, and I absolutely clattered on him, and I caught him in the chest. And I went to pick him up and as I looked to the tunnel, Jaw was sat in the tunnel and he just gave us a thumbs up and that was it. Never seen Arthur Graham again. We won 1-0, I scored and and it came in afterwards and he went, So all you've got to do, son. Find out how brave they are. <laughs> and that was it.
4: That was, that was Joe's style You know Just do what you, do what you can not stop him Yeah absolutely It was uh, no nonsense Joe um, Let them know you're there In the, in the first two or three minutes Because you're not good book In the first two or three minutes And in them days You would you would physically go And just cut somebody Just say well I'm here by the way so, But he did give me A good bit of advice One day Joe Again when I was a youngster In the team I tackled somebody Right in front of the dugout And I'll tell you who it was Ron Saunders Who played for Um Aston Villa, a hard man. And he, he he was obviously getting on a bit because he'd obviously played against Joe as well. And I remember I hit him and he bounced over the track and landed right at Joe's feet. And Joe got up and picked him up. Picked him up off the off the, the track. Picked him up and put him back on the pitch. And I thought, that's funny. Picking him up. Anyway, going at half time and the usual chit-chat, and chit-chat. And the game always says, I want to award race I says, what's that boss? He says, you know, Ron Saunders, the guy that you've just splattered all over the track. He says, I'll tell you something, be careful, because I'm frightened of him. <laughs> he says, so be careful the second half. And that was Joe's little bit away. He said, he's, he's dangerous, be careful. And that was just a nice little, you know, not a big thing about it, just because I'm frightened of him. And Joe was a tough as old boots, wasn't he?
5: Joe would pass away in February 1989 aged only 74 but more than 30 years later his legend still lives on. One of the big debates still raging on Tyneside is about recognition for Joe and in particular the topic of statues. Currently there's a trio of statues up at St James's Park, one of Sir Bobby Robson, the other of Alan Shearer and another of Jackie Milburn. Joe's achievements are documented by a bronze plaque which was unveiled in 2014 Thanks to the funds raised by the Fairs Club, its chairman Bill Gibbs takes up the story.
10: And the funny thing that happened was Joe's son, Ken, he had all the grandparents and great grandparents at Joe. Uh, he pulled the cord, and do you know it was like an overcast day. All of a sudden, there was a massive break in the clouds, and <laughs> he couldn't believe it. It was a massive sun ray, and one of the lads, <laughs> there's Joe. <laughs> it was weird. It's an assessment of all his uh, his managerial career, his playing career, and it tells you that he was the most successful and the best manager we've ever had. But Joe was Joe was the, the man, and, uh, and that's it in a nutshell. Originally, we were trying to look into a, a statue, which was a lot of money. One of the, a couple of lads thought, why not apply and We put all the information on there? And I said, yeah, good idea. So I, I, I just went away and I, I sat down one night and I just it took us about 40 minutes. And I put the FA Cup on, because, obviously, that was Joe's there. And um, the FA Cup, because there was not the to ever mentioned. There's no mention of the FA Cup around the ground, you know. Um, so the FA Cup was on, on the side. And I thought, uh, Joe's head in the middle. It's um, to the right of the club shop, uh, uh, next to the Milburn Statue, opposite the Strawberry pub. I mean, every time I go past it, I slow down in the car just to check it them. Oh, total elation. Total elation. Um, the funny thing was, I remember Vic um, pulled the first string. It was what Secretary Harry Watson that had the idea of putting three curtains up. So Vic pulled the first one on the left of the plaque, and it unveiled the cup, because that's where Vic was prominent, on the 55 Cup team. Um, then Bobby unveiled the right-hand side of the plaque, which was the first cup. And the funny thing that happened was, Joe's son... Ken, he had all the grandbears and great grandbears at you. Uh, he pulled the cord, and do you know I can get people to verify this. It was like an overcast day. All of a sudden, there was a massive break in the clouds. And, <laughs> you wouldn't believe it. It was a massive sunray. And one of the last <laughs> there's you. <Joe. laughs> it was weird. Uh, it, to me, it was it was very very important uh, that we got that up, and I mean the To see the big smile on Joe's Joe's son's face when he unveiled unveiled it, that that said it all. I can't tell you. There's no word I can think of for the it's it's better than elation and uh, utopia.
4: And I get annoyed at times as well when people forget about Joe's record, you know, they sort of say that, and all due respect to Kevin Keegan and, and, and Sir Bobby, who obviously wasn't at the club that long, he might have done the same some sort of thing, but Kevin Keegan was, this. people say, oh, he's the best manager we've ever had, and I go, well, no, not, not in the same league as Joe Harvey. I think Joe, I think, yeah, it would have been, and I don't want to get into the politics of the whole thing, but I think it would have been nice to have a nice big statue for... Uh, For Joe Harvey, bear in mind what I've just said because he certainly was entitled to it.
0: Oh, without a doubt. Yeah, I mean, I think if if you're given statues on what was achieved at this football club, surely Joe Harvey's got to get a statue. Yes, I know the plaque is there and and, you know one thing and another, but he won FA Cups as a as a player. He won. European competition you know he won the last major honour that this football club won as a manager you know the, you've got to go back to 69 to the last big honour that this football club won surely you know in my opinion he des- he deserves and yes the plaque is recognition to a degree but I think there should be a statue of him beside Bobby Robson you know I mean And Bobby was great for the football club, didn't win anything. Joe Harvey was here an awful lot longer as both player and manager. One stuff as a player, one stuff as a a manager. I think there should be a statue beside Sir Bobby of Joe.
1: When you think that there was a statue of Bobby Robson, um, (laughs) plainly for all to see, um, at, the, at that, ent- at that uh, southern entrance, the Gallagate end. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I knew Bobby Robson as, as well as I knew Joe. Um, and, I, and I think that Bobby Robson, he would have scratched his head and said, well, yeah, I did all right for the club. You know, I've gotten there into Europe and what have you, but I didn't win anything. You know, Bobby was always self-effacing and he would have said, I, I, but I didn't win anything, but Joe Harvey did. Joe Harvey should be where my statue is. Um, and uh, and I would have agreed with Bobby Robson on that because I'm, I am sure that that's what he would have said. Um, he was a terrific manager, was Bobby, but Joe was the last man to win a trophy. And... Good heavens above! You know, when you look back now, that's fifty, fifty-two years. It's fifty-two years ago. It's over half a century since Newcastle have won anything, and and the and the manager who won that last trophy is stuck round the arse side of the ground.
8: Crazy. To be fair. When you look at um, the plaque and the, and the thing next to Jackie and, uh, he'd be quite happy with that. You know, I mean, is, it, is it worth all oh, the hassle to have another statue made? Uh, if it, if it looks out by Bobby Robson at so. side. So, you know, I think he's quite happy where it was.
5: Now that's a debate that will go on, but one thing is for sure. Joe Harvey remains Newcastle United's greatest ever servant. Not just a player or manager but a mentor, a father figure and a friend.
8: He lived, eat and breathed Newcastle United. And certain things he was stupid in, but football, was that was his life.
0: Joe Harvey, Mr Newcastle, black and white through and through. Um, and he, perfect gentleman. Perfect gentleman. Um, and a leader in men.
1: All my memories of Joe are of of a man, of few words. But when he spoke, by heavens,
7: it was good to listen. A, a good man and a good manager. Uh, I would, uh, by the end, I, I class him as a friend, really.
4: Well, I think I've I've, um, I've liked him. I think he was liking to be. Or, like, my, like a father to me, uh, and I think he was a father to a lot of players. Uh, the fact that I was similarly in build and probably had as much ability or less ability as him, and I think Joe was just a, a great man-manager. And as I said at the early early part of this interview, I think Joe had, was a, the best servant that I think Newcastle United's ever had. And I think probably will ever have.
5: This has been Joe, Newcastle's greatest ever servant, a documentary from the Everything Is Black and White podcast and Chronicle Live. Written, hosted and produced by me, Andrew Musgrove. A special thanks to everyone who featured. If you liked this episode, then why not subscribe to the Everything Is Black and White podcast on your podcast provider.